Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing or donating at the allingospel.com website. Uh, Judges 7 is where we're picking up tonight. Uh, in, for context, uh, Gideon is the fifth judge in the book of Judges, a book of sporadic attempts to revive the nation of Israel to get back to that state of a holy nation. So we are looking at a culture that is in decline. They have fallen from the grace and the holiness that they once had. They are no longer following God's law. They forgot God's law. Then they forsake God's law. And with Gideon, they are in Gideon's own house. There's an idol standing in the middle of it. So the nation has fallen apart and they are going after other idols. Then in Judges 6, Gideon runs into Jesus and he meets Jesus and has a conversation with Jesus. And Jesus promises him, if he takes a stand for the Lord, he won't die. Judges 6.23 promises him, you will not die. That's a huge promise. And I just loved it because it was like, yeah, that's the Jesus that made the same promise to me. If I follow him, I will see eternal life. And then Gideon, in the rest of chapter 6, cleans house. He tears down the idols. Uh, oddly enough, it's the people in the city that got upset with him for cleaning up his own house which is a really, you can see the culture has fallen because he can't even tend to his own house without other people butting their nose into it. So that's what he's in the middle of doing. Uh, he then is, Midian marches and assembles for war. They have heard of Gideon. And again, all he did is tore an idol down in his own house. We're not talking about like rattling sabers or anything like that. We're talking about saying, I'm going to serve the Lord God alone and I'm not going to serve the things that my world is serving right now. And I won't bow to those idols. So he takes a stand. And Midian is back. They're ready to steal, kill, and destroy because it's what they do. Uh, and then you have this Judges chapter 7, which starts with verse 1. Then Zerubbabel, that is Gideon. Oh, yeah, he got a nickname, Zerubbabel, which means Baal can contend with him versus the other way around. And his dad was, I think, kind of proud of his son for taking a stand. And all the people who were with him rose early and encamped beside the well of Herod, so that the camp of the Midianites was on the north side of them by the hill of Mora in the valley. Chapter 6, remember the people are starving. That's the problem this time around. Gideon's found threshing wheat on the floor in the wine press, and God meets him where he's working and calls him out. Gideon gave a burnt offering, which the Lord accepted. In fact, Gideon didn't have to burn the offering. God did that for him with the staff, remember? So the Lord actually did the offering for Gideon. He tore down those altars, and then he gets that nickname Zerubbabel, let Baal contend with him. Um, it says here, all the people, in verse 1. All the people. All the people who were with him rose early. Now, all the people in this context would be the Abizarites, because he hasn't really called all the nation of Israel. It's the people in his city, the people that are with him. Maybe a handful, 20, 30 people. 
um, and the others that are camped with them guarding Israel, uh, the positioning of where they're at on the hill by the Valley of Morah basically says they're looking down on the Midianites, which would be about two, three miles away in the Valley of Jezreel. So they're in this position that would be geographically one where they could see their enemy, they could see what's shown up at their doorstep. The hill of Morah is not insignificant. It is a place we should recognize from Genesis 12.6. It's the same place that Abram came when he met the Canaanites. In Deuteronomy 11.30, Moses is speaking for God and he points at where he's going to send the nation of Israel against the Canaanites. And it's the same location that for Abraham, Moses, and now Gideon, there's this line with the enemy that gets drawn at this spot. It's a significant spot. Also, for those of you that are going to be Revelation geeks at some point in your life, the Valley of Jezreel can also be called Megiddo, right? It's this big fertile plain right in the middle of Israel. And Megiddo is where we get the term Armageddon, where a final fight will be fought. So we're in that part of the world, that area, and where they're at on the hill of Morah is a distinct location that would give them a great view of this. The point here is that they can see how massive the Midianite army is. Remember in chapter 6, they were as many as locusts. They were everywhere, unbeatable. In, they could see everything and eat everything. Um, so one read of the story of Gideon is that what we're going to read in the next two chapters is about how he fights the Midianites. That's, that's a legit read of the, these chapters. How do we fight the enemy when they're all over the place? Another read on this, I think, is about moral courage. And it's actually the narratives that get told around this battle of Midian. We get very little on the battle with Midianites. We get a ton on how Gideon deals with other Israelites. The battle is not with Midian. It's actually with people in Israel that have compromised their faith. And how do you deal with those situations? And I think as we get into it, you'll kind of see where I'm coming from on that. And we'll try to cover both, both angles. Verse 2, the Lord said to Gibeon, Gideon, oh, Gibeon, that's like a monkey, right? Gibbet? Gibbons? Yeah. All right. Gideon. Pray harder, Paul. Um, and the Lord said to Gideon, the people who are with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hands. Lest Israel claim the glory for itself against me, saying, my own hand has saved me. Now therefore proclaim in the hearing of the people, saying, whoever is fearful and afraid, two different words, let him turn and depart at once to Mount Gilead, and 22,000 of the people returned, and 10,000 remained. Again, nothing about the Midianites. You just had two-thirds of the people that showed up to fight just left. So this is about Gideon dealing with other Israelites and how they don't stand up and stick up and follow. And this first group of people that took off, this 22,000, is one of four groups of people that Gideon has to deal with. So... In this case, he doesn't really deal with them because they just take off on him. Uh, note that the Lord says to Gideon, and this is cool because in the last chapter, Jesus showed up in person. Now Gideon's just talking to the Lord through prayer. And when the Lord talks to Gideon, we don't see a physical manifestation of the Lord here. We just see him talking straight to God. So part of what happened in chapter 6 is Gideon learning how to be a faith-filled person. And now he's just talking to God directly. I just thought that was cool. When God says it's too many... That does not mean that it's too many for God. What he's saying there is that he understands that any show of strength for Israel is going to be a way in which they can say that somebody else besides the Lord did it. I take that very seriously. When we do things, even in the name of God, 
and put our own will forward, it's not God doing it, it's us doing it. And God's being really cautious with Gideon here because he doesn't want that to happen in this situation. He wants this to go into a Bible as an example of God doing something. So less people is better in that equation. So it has to be beyond a shadow of a doubt that God did it. And if God's going to do anything, we want to follow the Lord in that. Um, and we're going to note here, by the way, that in chapter 8, verse 10, if you just flip a page, there's going to be 135,000 troops that they're looking at. They're totally outnumbered. So when you go from 32,000 people, you're probably already thinking, we're outnumbered four, five to one right now. This is a mess. And then when 22,000 people leave, now they're 13 to one. Like the odds just keep getting worse. And that's, I think, the worse it gets for Israel, the more glory goes to God. Dan, I bet you recognize my recycled paper and what those things are. Lest Israel claim the glory. God knows their hearts and he knows Israel's a fallen nation right now. And if they win this battle, they're going to take the credit for it. So the other piece of this is this idea of if anybody's afraid or fearful, let them go home. By the way, that's the law. Gideon should have already done this. So he may know the stories of, you know, saying there used to be a God that did miracles. Remember that in the last chapter? But he's not following the law or he didn't do it on his own until the Lord told him to. And the law is this, Deuteronomy 28, the officers of the army shall speak further to the people and say, what man is there that's fearful or faint-hearted? Let him go and return to his house, lest, he, the brethren faint like, lest his brethren faint like his heart. So when God says whoever is fearful and afraid, that's referencing or even quoting that law from Deuteronomy. God didn't want cowards in his army, and there was no place for them. So in Deuteronomy 20, verse 1, it says, when you go out to battle against your enemies see, and see the horses and chariots, which they're doing from the hilltop right now, and the people are more nu numerous than you, which they are right now, don't be afraid of them, for the Lord your God's with you who brought you up from the land of Egypt. When it looks impossible, it's an open door for God to do something. And we should be anticipating that when that happens in our lives. When we see an impossibility, God loves that. The two words, fearful and afraid, I want to unpack those because there's something there that I think is interesting. When we read the word fear in the Bible, at least the Old Testament, where we see the Hebrew, it's the word yare. Yare is not haunted house fear. It is not watching, reading a Stephen King book fear. That's not the kind of thing that's there. Yare in the Hebrew is to revere something or to dread conflict with something or to have utter respect and awe for it. So when it says you should have a fear of the Lord, it is to have such awe for God that you would never want to cross him. And that, that idea of crossing or being in conflict with our God is something that is a fearful thought. We don't want that. So it, is, it, it comes with a connotation of reverence and respect. So when they look at the Midianite army and they respect that army, that's fear. Or it's this awe of them. And oh boy, I wouldn't want to get in a fight with that. That's fear of conflict with that thing. So the word afraid, ah rats, and I like that, ah rats, uh, is to tremble with dread before something. It's the thing that makes you lose control of yourself when that's about to happen. That feeling you get at the top of the roller coaster right before it goes over the hill, that's yaw rats, right? Oh no, it's that trembling of the soul, the spirit, the weak knees. Um, that situation is to fear the consequence of something. So fear you might, yare, you might have of your parents. You love them, you adore them, you respect them, you wouldn't want to cross them, right? Yarats 
is the fear that you have of the bully on the playground. There's no love there. There's no reverence there. There's just fear of something that might happen to you. So in the English, that just comes through like a, like a repetition, but it's not repetition at all. You fear them, you're afraid of them. Yare, arats. And those two things are going on. So with the 22,000, it's interesting that the, the, the writer of this chapter puts no emphatics on that. We see a lot of emphatics in the Hebrew where they say something twice. None of that. It's just historical narrative. This is the number. That's the count. And God's answer to that situation is, if you're scared of this situation, go home. Get out of here. We don't need you that much. For me, that's super convicting, right? If I tremble at the idea of sharing my faith with somebody, I'm really not in God's army. Like, I need to get over that trembling and, like, hang out with Amy for a couple days and you'll get over it. It's really easy. But you've got to get over it. And sharing the love and the peace and the joy that you have should not be something that makes you tremble. The only thing that makes you tremble in that situation is the enemy. But it's not from God. From God, we should be inviting people. Welcome. Come to the kingdom. A coward dies a thousand times before his death, but the valiant tastes death but once. It seems to be most strange that men should fear, seeing that death, a necessary end, will come when it comes. Well, that's William Shakespeare and Julius Caesar. That's not the Bible. But it's true, right? When you're a coward, you're already dead. You've already lost the battle. You have to go into those situations with a certain level of valiance. And remember God first said to Gideon, O man of valor, right? And we're going to see here that Gideon's still dealing with fear, but he's not dominated by it. To tremble a little bit is okay. To walk away from the situation without doing it, when God's called you to do it, that's not okay. Nothing's as strong as the heart of a volunteer. Jimmy Doolittle, the guy who avenged Pearl Harbor. That idea that if we go into battles as a willing, joyful servant of God, we're an unstoppable army of people in a spiritual war. But if we go into it with fear and trembling, just go home. Take care of your house. Don't bring that fear to the rest of us because we have to march forward. We have to do what God's called us to do. And here's the other thought, just a thought on this idea that he's sending people home. God never demands something of his children that he hasn't prepared you for. He's never put you in a situation where he's going to throw you in there so that you can fail utterly and go backwards in your faith. You may fail, but the, the, the purpose of that is to go forward in your faith. You become a stronger person and a healthier person. You get over those fears. God doesn't call you to do things that are outside of your spiritual giftings, right? And that's something where you don't feel guilty if you're not doing something another believer is doing in the fellowship. You're doing what God's called you to do in the fellowship without fear and trembling. And you feel no guilt or, or idea that you should do it. These guys that went home actually showed up to the fight when they were called. So these are soldiers, Israel soldiers, that came to the battle and were there against 135, but they're being honest with themselves. They, they were scared. And God's saying, I don't need you. But there wasn't, there's no accusation of sin or condemnation here. Not in Christ Jesus. Like, you're just not there yet. Go home. Maybe the next battle comes up. You're ready to go because you missed the last one. And you want to be part of that battle. So I, I, that idea that this, the way this is put together is a really interesting chapter. Um, but God doesn't need cowards in his army. And that should be a convicting thing if we struggle with fear and trembling. Right? Revelation 21.7 says... Oh, I hand wrote this. You who overcome shall inherit all things and I will be his God and he shall be my son. But the cowardly, they're going to have their part in the lake of fire and ultimately they're going to die. 
So one of the list of horrendous things, like with murderers, is cowards. And God doesn't have a lot of time and patience for cowards. So if you're honest with yourself and there's fear and trembling, like hang out with people that have no fear or trembling and be around those people that are purposefully moving forward in the kingdom. And you'll find that when birds of a feather flock together, like they share the same feathers, or I don't know, how does that go? Something to that effect. You will gain strength off of the people in your fellowship and those people that you spend your time with. All right, verse four. But the Lord said to Gideon, the people are still too many. Bring them down to the water and I will test them for you there. So God's te- does God test his people? Uh, verse four says, yeah. Sometimes God tests you. And some people struggle with that idea and, and we can talk about it later. I will test is sarap. It means to smelt something. It's actually not to test something like a school test. It is to burn something to get rid of the impurities. It's the word that's used with metalworking. He's going to put the metal in the fire by doing this. Uh, and bringing them down to the river seems like a nice, like when you take metal out and you crush it in the water and it goes, blacksmiths are really fun to watch. He's going to take them down to the river and he's going to test them there, implying that he has heated them up and he's going to see what happens. Uh, so he's going to refine them. And in 2 Corinthians 12, 7, Paul argues the same way. He was refined by the fire. And then he puts us through agonizing experiences because he wants our metal stronger and he's got something in mind for us. Christians can get too big for their britches. And this is a situation where we're going to see he's going to get rid of a second group of people. Then it will be that of whom I say to you, this one shall go, the same shall go with you. And whomever I say to you, this one shall not go, the same shall not go. So God's kind of testing Gideon here too because he's not telling Gideon what he's about to do. So Gideon has to direct the army to go down to the river without knowing the plan. Have you ever been in that situation where God asks you to do something, but you don't know the next step, but you know confidently what God's saying to do now? So this is one of those things where like, ah, God does this to us. He asks us to take steps of faith. So Gideon does it. It's very similar to Joshua when he brought the priests with the Ark of the Covenant down to the river and he had them stand in the water. Remember that story? And then Joshua didn't know what the next step was. He had to wait for God's next instruction. So they literally stood there in the water. And I always liked that image. So you wonder how long Gideon's army had to stand by the river before Gideon was told what to do with them. And in that sense, you wait upon the Lord. So bring them down. Verse 5. So he brought the people down to the water. This is Gideon as a man of faith, why he gets celebrated in Hebrews. At this point in this chapter, he is not what he was in the last chapter. He's a new creation. God tells him to do something, he just does it. He doesn't ask for tests. He doesn't ask for, conf- he doesn't lay the fleece out. He's, God says it, he does it. It's just a much more efficient system. And the Lord said to Gideon, everyone who laps from the water with his tongue as a dog laps, you shall set him apart by himself. Likewise, everyone who gets down on his knees to drink. So Gideon's asked to discern and separate people. And as a leader, he's got to look at people and make a decision as to what they're seeing. But God gives him criteria by which to look at and discern people. He's not asking them to judge. That's what God does after we die. But he is asking him to make some discerning choices as to who goes where. Verse 6, and the number of those who lapped, putting their hand to their mouth, was 300 men. And Gideon had to be going, no, right? And the rest of the people got down on their knees to drink water. So I'll stop here. Commentators have three different ways of dealing with this. This is what Alyssa likes to hear. 
One interpretation of this is that God was looking for the soldiers that would keep their eyes up. Because if I'm bringing the water to my mouth and licking it like a dog does, if you've ever watched a dog drink water, they keep their eyes looking around the room while they do it. So they don't lose awareness of their surroundings when they drink their water, unless you're shadow and you just dunk your whole head in there. Um, but most dogs will continue to watch the room while they eat, or at least while they drink water. So one idea is that if, you're a, if you just drop to your knees and bury your head in the sand, the only thing watching for the enemy is your butt. So you, like an ostrich, you put your head in the sand and think you're invisible. And the rest of you sticks out to see. And God's basically looking for those people that are still wary, even though they're not fearful. And they still have a brain. They're not just stupid and self-serving. So th these are people that have got fear maybe, but they're overcoming it. Second thing is if you lap water, you're quieter than if you drop to your knees and have to pick up things. So maybe God's looking for people that aren't loud. I thought that was an interesting take on it. Uh, they know how to be quiet. So if an army has to move with any kind of stealth, when you see as we go forward in the chapter, that's the strategy. God's getting rid of people that would wreck the strategy. So that's the second thought on this. Third thought, God's getting rid of people that are self-centered. If I take the water and bring it to my mouth, I'm getting less water in any given moment, which means I'm putting my own desires to the side and I'm restraining my fleshly desires in order to serve my king because I'm in the army. So even though I get less water at a time, I'm denying myself a full gulp at any given time and I'm using my tongue to lap the water. And in, in this sense, you wonder, what if people drop to their knees and then cup their hand and lick the water? Like, there's got to be these gray areas for Gideon, like how did he divide them up? Uh, but apparently there's 300 that did this. Jesus says to his disciples, if anyone comes to, de desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me, Matthew 16, 24. That's, that narrative's in all the synoptic gospels. The idea of following Christ is that we do, do self-denial when we do that. We have things that maybe we want in the flesh that we give up because we'd rather be pure, we'd rather be ready for the battle. So now, literally, they're at 400 to 1 odds with 300 people. That's less than 1% of their original force is left. And we are in a situation where God has said to the cowards, go home, and to the self-serving, go home. Don't need you. We'll move forward without you. So two groups of people that actually showed up that are part of the people of God that came forward in faith are sent home because they can't get past themselves and they can't get past their fear of the Midianites. And God just doesn't need to use those people. For me, at least, that's super convicting. Like, I don't want to be in either one of those categories. Lord, help me get rid of my fear. Lord, help me get rid of my desire to serve myself and help me to serve others. Verse 7, Then the Lord said to Gideon, By the 300 men who lapped, I will save you. I looked up the word lap thinking there might be something there, but no, it's just like dogs licking water. By the 300 men who lapped, I will save you and deliver the Midianites into your hand. Let all the other people go, every man to his place. Some people debate on that, his place. Either they're going home home or they just go back to the camp and they watch the camp for the, for the army. So it doesn't necessarily mean they're going home. And just that word place there could go either way. So the people took provisions and their trumpets into their hands and sent away all the rest of Israel, every man to his tent. 
and returned those 300 men. Now the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. So we know geographically they are above, physically above them, and they could see they're outnumbered. But now they're outnumbered 301. But in any good adventure story, they just gained something. And I, I hope you caught that in verse 8. The people took provisions and trumpets into their hands. So all those 31,700 people that just left, what they left behind were trumpets and provisions for those 300 people. For 30, if you have one trumpet for every 100 people, that would be a unit in the ancient world. Typically, it was 100 people. It's where you get the term centurion for Rome, is that that trumpet would give commands to 100 different people. And this is important given their coming strategy. So if they kept all the trumpets, it still sounds like an army of 32,000 people when you blow those trumpets. Make sense? All right, and then the other thing are the provisions, which are going to come into play here later too. They have provisions for 32,000 people, but they're 300. So they're taking everything they can carry. They're overpacked. They're ready for a long journey. And I just said all that from memory. Nine, and it happened on the same night that the Lord said to him, arise, go down against the camp, for I've delivered it into your hand. But if you're afraid to go down, wait a second, didn't all the afraid people just leave? But he's talking to Gideon here. If you're afraid to go down, go down to the camp with Puri, your servant, and you shall hear what they say, and afterwards your hands shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. Then he went down with Puri, his servant, which basically means he was afraid. Like, okay, Lord, I'll go take your thing. But we know that about Gideon. He, he wants confirmation. And God wants Gideon to either go in total faith or get the assurances he needs. And I love this. This is a merciful God. He's willing to work with Gideon where Gideon's at. So when we tend to beat ourselves up because we didn't do something in the faith or we couldn't do it or we failed at doing something, stop beating yourself up. Let God take you where you're at and work with you where you're at. Maybe you need confirmation and assurances. Like your house deal just came through, right? That might be something that, you know, you might need those little signs from the Lord and that's okay. And the Lord still loves you and he works with you. And I love that. Then he went down with Purim, his servant, to the outpost of the armed men who were in the camp. Now the Midianites and the Amicalites, all the people of the east, were lying in the valley, sleeping, as numerous as locusts, and their camels were without number. Camels are nasty creatures, and they're big, and they eat all of your crops, and they spit. And the sand, as the sand by the seashore in multitude. God promised Abraham that Israel would be like the sand. Remember that? And now here, it's the Midianites and the Amicalites that are there. Amicalites just show up because they're like, hey, there's a good fight and we're going to kill some Israelites, so we're in on that. The same night, verse 9, means Gideon got his assurance the same night. God didn't wait. He didn't, make him, he didn't punish him with that, that idea of waiting upon the Lord, which we see elsewhere in the Bible. He's just helping him out. But the army then is ready for this. It says, I have delivered, uh, in verse 9, Another one of these situations where God says something in the root. No past, present, or future participle on this word. I have delivered is, I, di I delivered it in the past, I've delivered it now, I've delivered it in the future. It's a long-term without tense promise to Gideon, I've delivered the Midianites into your hand. I've already done it. And he's looking at 135,000 people with a group of 300, not much bigger than our group going after an army of 135,000, and they got camels, right? 
and he's saying, I've already delivered them to you. And if you don't believe me, go listen to what they're doing. So the Lord is working in the dreams of the Midianites. Think of the chances of this situation. Oh, I'll read the verse first. And when Gideon had come, there was a man telling a dream to his companion, and he said, I have a dream. And to my surprise, a loaf of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian. And it came into a tent, and it struck it so hard that it fell and overturned, and the tent collapsed. And his buddy said, that's a nightmare to you? He didn't, that's not biblical. The Bible didn't say that part. Have you ever, like, had those dreams where when you try to explain them to people, like, they're not as scary as they actually were when you had them? You know, or those things that, there's something about the feeling of the dream that's, because loaves of barley bread are not terrifying by any standard. But there's something that you know there's a truth in that, that you are, it's making you tremble. And remember, we just sent home the Israelite tremblers. So when Gideon hears that, he's like, oh, so there were tremblers in my camp, but there's tremblers in this camp too. And this camp's full of them. And tremblers make mistakes. Ask any military person. People that are terrified do really dumb things in combat. They like, friendly fire starts to happen because scared people make bad soldiers. And so Gideon sees this and knows it. The barley bread there, don't miss the imagery. Barley bread is the food. You don't eat barley as a human being. Barley is fed to the horses and the cattle. So anybody making bread out of barley is totally impoverished and without normal food of their own, a la the Israelites as of chapter 6. The only people eating barley bread in the ancient world, or at least in this narrative, are the Israelites. So a barley bread weak thing is something so weak it shouldn't... If a piece of bread hits a tent, it shouldn't knock it over. But in a nightmare, everything changes. Because how big is a loaf of barley bread and how big is a tent? And by the way, it says the tent. There's an article there. Should be in the English at least. That means the leader's tent. It's not just a tent. It's the tent of the camp. The central planning camp where they have their planning table and they plot out their military and their camels are outside. And here's the dirty little secret. The enemy's losing sleep at night because of the Israelites. And Gideon hears that and he's like, whoa, what do you mean? The enemy's scared of me? He's a farm guy. He's Luke Skywalker, man. He came out of nowhere and he's threshing wheat in a wine press and he and his buddies get together and some Israelites join him and now they're down to 300 people and the Midianites are scared of him. That had to be, imagine how that felt for Gideon. Think of the chances of everything. Not only to go down to the camp, but out of 135 people, they happened, 135,000 people, they happened to come up on this conversation. Like either this conversation is being multiplied throughout the camp or God led them straight to these two people right at that moment and they didn't get discovered. Think of the chances of that. And they're able to hear exactly what Gideon needs to hear to give him assurances. Like all of these, like think of the chances. And here's the thing, it's not chance. It's how the Holy Spirit works. It's how he guides us and teaches us. So verse 14 says, Then his companion answered and said, This is nothing else than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash. They even know his lineage. What would that, the impact that would have had. A man of Israel. Wow, what a title. He's a man of Israel. And that's not said in a derogatory way. It's said in reference to a nightmare that this guy just had, his friend just had. This is the man of Israel. Into his hand, God has delivered Midian. No, in, in this, like, God's already delivered Midian and the whole camp. So this dream interpreter, another Midianite, is telling him exactly what God told him. Word for word, think of the chances. 
It's all coincidence. Verse 15, and so it was when Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation that he worshipped. He returned to the camp of Israel and he said, Arise, for the Lord has delivered, now he's using that language, has delivered the camp of Midian into your hand. God permits him to encourage him. It's not that Gideon is weak. It is that God knows Gideon and what he needs to do his job. He gives him exactly what he needs. No coincidences. So we see this faith building in this situation and Gideon's reaction is to worship him in the Hebrew shakah. It means to bow down or position yourself truthfully before a mightier being. An homage you would give to royalty. It's his immediate reaction when he hears this dream. Because he's thinking exactly what I'm saying. Like, God is operating and I don't have to do anything. He's already set it all up. All I need to do is what God told me to do with his word. So he worships God. That's the right result because he suddenly realizes that our God doesn't lose battles. Our God's got a perfect record. As the football season kicks up, that's what everybody's looking for. And with the God, the God Yahweh, we have a perfect record God and Gideon realizes he's there. It says this loaf of bread is the sword of Gideon. So the bread becomes the sword is an image we get in the New Testament. The word of God, the bread of life, becomes the sword by which we move and do things. The word of God is actually the weapon that we have. So that idea that the sword of Gideon is interpreted that way, remember Gideon doesn't have a sword, he has a wine press. Right? And they came to this battle, we don't have any mention of their armaments that they have. Like they're farmers with pitchforks. But the Midianites are perceiving something very different. Maybe all this hiding in caves has left the mystery that the Midianites have filled because in their own conscience, they know what they're doing is wrong. They shouldn't be stealing from the Israelites every year. So Gideon realizes that in God there's victories because everything in his flesh says to attack 135,000 people with 300 men is stupid. Everything in our flesh says the same thing, right? Because we're rational people. But God's asking Gideon to set aside his reasonable conclusion that that's idiotic and do it anyways because God wants to do something. So it actually is crazy to take 300 people and charge the lines of 135. Radical faith is always called to that kind of outcome and that kind of intimidating starting point. And then you do it and it's just not that bad, which is what's going to happen. So Gideon's been made strong. This action of attacking that he's just called for is actually valor, which is what God called him at the beginning, man of valor. So the man of Israel becomes a man of valor. He actually becomes what the Lord called him at the very beginning because he knows the Lord's going to deliver. Verse 16, then he divided, but he's not going to be an idiot about it. He divides it into three, he divides the 300 men into three companies. As far as we know, God never told him to do that. He's just using his head. What's the best chance I have with what God's given me? And how can I do what God's called me to do with the tools that I have? And he put a trumpet into every man's hand with empty pitchers and torches inside the pitchers. How did the pitchers get empty? This is probably what those provisions were in. Remember they left all the provisions and they left the trumpets? So maybe they just dumped the food out on the ground. So now they have 300 pitchers with the torches inside the pitchers. I want to think through that picture. 
if I take a lit flame and I put a thing over it, what happens to the flame? So this confounded my geek brain. What they had to have done is cut a little hole in the bottom of the pitcher and put the torch through it, thus putting an encasement around the torch but letting oxygen in through the top. Right, my scientists? Otherwise, you'd put the flame out very quickly, yes? Think what this does. It's pitch black. Which way does light go in the night? It goes out. So if you've got a pitcher all around it, the only direction the light can go is up out of the pitcher. And if there's nothing for that light to bounce off of, the enemy can't see anything. No light at all. But your torch keeps burning. So you're with me on that? And then he said to them, look at me and do likewise. Watch. And when I come to the edge of the camp, you will do as I do. If you're struggling with sharing your faith with people, go watch somebody do it. And you'll be like, oh, that's really easy. This is what good leaders do in the kingdom. Look at me and do what I'm doing. Until, of course, they sin and fall from grace, and then you look somewhere else, right? But hopefully you're picking men of God and women of God that you can follow, and you can do what they're doing, and the fruit in their life is something you want to produce in your life. Verse 18, when I blow the trumpet, I and all who are with me, then you will blow the trumpets on every side of the whole camp and say, the sword of the Lord and of Gideon. This idea that Gideon has been, chapter 6, verse 34, filled with the Holy Spirit, and now being filled with the Holy Spirit, he starts organizing people and moving forward with a plan. So this is part of Gideon working with the Holy Spirit in him, is that he's no dummy. And he's actually working and doing things, and the Holy Spirit works in total concert with the human being. It's not like a demonic possession or anything weird like that. It's simply that the Lord's put his spirit on him and he's moving forward. So God gives direction. Gideon takes care of details. The Holy Spirit and him are moving as a team at this point. And it's going to work. God's going to bless it. That idea that a leader of integrity can say, look at me and do likewise, I just, for me, I just underline that part. Because uh, I think it's just one of those things that that's the kind of leader I want to find. The sword of the Lord of Gideon, he's using the sword of the Lord, which he heard from the Midianites, and he's using their dreams against them. But notice the addition he put in there. Because the Midianites said the sword of Gideon, and when Gideon tells his soldiers to shout, he wants to make sure the Midianites and the Amalekites know exactly who's winning this battle. And he adds the Lord right in the middle of it. And godly men following after the Holy Spirit make sure they put the credit in the right place. This is the Lord God doing this, right? So Gideon inserts the Lord with his, what he wants them to yell, and they're going to yell out their worst nightmares, that God is here and he's in charge. So the uh, sword of the Lord, by the way, what their shout-out is actually more truthful than what the Midianites said, because as far as we know, Gideon doesn't have a sword in his hand. He has a pitcher and a trumpet. He's going into battle with things that are not traditionally weapons of war. And if you go back to Numbers chapter 10, and you want to re-listen to that podcast, trumpets are often associated imagery-wise or typology-wise with prayer. He's going in with a light and with a trumpet. He's going in with the word of God, and he's going in with the prayers that he can give to God, and those are his battle weapons. And the imagery kind of comes through as the battle carries out. So verse 19, so Gideon and the hundred men who were with him came to the outpost of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch. That's where we get the term midnight. It's in the ancient world, there were three watches and middle watch was the one from 10 o'clock to two o'clock. 
And they posted the watch and they blew the trumpets and they broke the pitchers that were in their hands. They didn't want to hide their light under a pitcher, oh no. And then there were three companies blowing the trumpets and they broke the pitchers and they held the torches in their left hands and the trumpets in their right hands for blowing and then they cried out, the sword of the Lord and of Gideon. Now before we get any further into this, blowing a trumpet and yelling the sword of the Lord of Gideon at the same time is confounding to me. This may be the first place in the Bible where I'm willing to admit I don't quite understand that verse because I don't know how you can blow on a trumpet and yell at the same time. So they're either interchanging them or it's a kazoo. And we got to <laughs> rework our whole imagery of what's in their hands right there. Um, but the Bible says they did both. Probably they take the breath and they do both. The point of the verse is they went boo to the Midianites in the middle of the night waking them up out of these dreams. And you know when you wake up from a dream and you do weird things? Have I ever told you about the tornado dream with Steph? Middle of the night, I can hear this sound from this, Steph insists on opening the windows at night during some hot, and it was spring, and it was, you know, and I could hear this of the wind going through this little crack in the window, and I'm thinking, air pressure, that's a tornado. And I'm in the dream and in the middle of this. And so I wake up and Steph's like, what, 100 pounds? I pick her up and I throw her on the ground. And then I jump on top of her. And this had to be two in the morning. Steph's in a dead sleep. And I'm just thinking the whole house is coming down on us because my rational brain hasn't kicked in yet. So you do stupid things. And Steph, to her great credit, just calmly wakes up and goes, Sean, what are you doing? Like with that tone too. And then I'm trying to explain myself, well, there's a tornado. If there was a tornado, wouldn't there be alarms going off? That made a lot of sense to me. Way too late in the game. Right? This is what happened in the Midianites. Boo! Trumpets! Sword of the Lord of Gideon! And they're like, oh crap! And they're getting their swords out because they have swords and they just start whacking at things. And with the Amicalites and the Midianites, they don't know who they're hitting. There's no uniforms. There's no color code. They were coming out here with their camels. And the camels, can you imagine how they would react to this? Broken pitchers right next to them? Get camels running around your backyard and see how comfortable and safe you feel, right? This is chaos, instant chaos. If you doubt God, imagine yourself being in that camp when those pictures go off. And all you see around, you get up instant looking and you're thinking, tornado, oh no, not tornado, that's Sean. And then you think, there's lights over here, there's sound over here, there's trumpets blaring. It sounds like about 32,000 people are blowing, those are unit trumpets I can hear. And you're thinking, oh my goodness, this is the battle we're on. Fear's a weapon. The enemy uses that weapon against us and God sent those people home because he didn't want people susceptible to that weapon. But God can also use that fear, that reverence and awe of something against the enemy too. And the great, I think that one of the key takeaways from this chapter is the Lord has also in you inspired a love and adoration for him, but there is a trepidation from the enemy and people that don't serve God because they were made to serve him. So whatever bravado and puffed up arrogance you may see from the world, at deep down in the middle of the night, they're a little worried that this God thing might be true and that they're accountable to it. 
and then they start dreaming about it, and then you wake them up at two in the morning with trumpets. And it's great. It's even better if they're teenagers. Wake them up with trumpets. Right, Grant Katie? Yeah. They have a really mean dad. That idea of doubt will cripple, distract, and confuse in the next couple verses. And that's all that happens. Light, the prayer of the trumpets, and the testimony, the sword of the Lord and of Gideon. That's all they do. Light, trumpets, testimony. And it makes the enemy just run. They're terrified of God's people praying, shouting out the words that he said to them, and that, that idea of shining their light and letting people see what they are and that boldness that comes out. Verse 20 says, torches in their left hands and trumpets in their right. Uh, the trumpet is always, or the right hand in the Bible, sorry Steph, is the strong hand. And the ancient world always saw it that way. The right is the strong hand. The strong hand is the trumpet. They blew those trumpets and then they cried. Prayer came first. And I, I think these things are, this is God's word. I think the order of these things is really intentional. So, if the trumpet makes an uncertain sound, who will prepare for battle? 1 Corinthians 14.8. If the trumpet's unclear, if your prayers are meandering and lost, who's getting you ready for battle? The way we get an organization for our trumpets, our prayers, is that we're in God's word and we've heard from God directly. Then we know how to pray. We know what to ask for because we can be in his will. So if we don't have anything we can boldly proclaim, we don't have any objective truth we can shout out, we're crippled as believers. Part of what we shout out in the middle of confusion and chaos is truth. We become a light in that environment, a joyful light. And if you enjoy waking up teenagers with trumpets like I do, this experience can be really delightful at the same time because they're people you love and you want them to be in the kingdom. So you wake them up. Verse 21. And every man stood in his place all around the camp and the whole army ran and cried out and fled. And when the 300 blew the trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against the, his companion throughout the whole camp. This is the camp of the Midianites, the Amicalites. And the army fled to Beth Acacia, that's a kind of tree, towards Zeraria, to the border of Abel Maholala, by Tabath. You try pronouncing those. And every man stood in his place. There was no ground to gain, so the enemy runs. Typical Israelite strategy, you get them on three sides, and this is where that comes from. Three units of 100, all sides of the camp. You can't really get around to the fourth side, so they have a direction they can run, and they do. And in the running with camels, some of them die in that process too. So here's a strategy. Hold up your light, blow your trumpet, stand your ground. Make sense? That's the whole strategy here. Do all things without murmurings and disputings, that you may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God, and daughters without rebuke in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation among whom you are shining as lights in the world. Hold forth the word of life, Philippians 2, 14 through 16. Where do you think they got that imagery from? You know now, that's from Judges 7. And you can understand the imagery that they're talking about in those letters when you read through this. Every man's sword is now hacking each other and a lot of people die. Now the Israelites have swords that they didn't have before because they can just go pick them up off the ground because as they run and fall there will be plenty of resources to pick up and the army flees essentially the route that happens here given the positioning of the beginning of the chapter is they have to run south and south puts them right in Ephraim 
And Ephraim, if you remember, did not join this fight at the beginning. They're not one of the tribes that showed up. So now they've got thousands of Midianites and Amalekites running through their land with 300 Israelites running behind them with trumpets blowing. And verse 23, And the men of Israel gathered together from Naphtali, Asher, and Manasseh and pursued the Midianites. I should have read that before. So they pursue them, they drive them out. Um, if you remember from Judges 129, the Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites from their own land. They made business deals with them. They lived with them. They partnered up. They started getting into cooperative relationships with them. So they're not about to necessarily attack the Canaanites. Here we got Midianites and Amicalites, a different group. So we get a little parenthetical passage here. Leaving in verse 23, and it will pick back up in 8 verse 4, which we'll get to next week. But we're going to see a little narrative here about Ephraim that comes right in the middle of this chase. So if you skip to 8 verse 4, you can see the chase continues. And they're going to drop in this little story. And I'm going to suggest we get a third group of people that Gideon's got to deal with. He dealt with the cowards. He dealt with the self-serving. And now he's got to deal with Ephraim. A very different relationship. Again, fellow Israelites, fellow believers in Yahweh, or they should be. He's dealing with other people in the kingdom. Then Gideon sent messengers throughout all the mountains of Ephraim and said, come down against the Midianites and seize from them the watering places as far as Beth Barah and the Jordan. So Gideon basically is calling them out. Come help. And all of the places where you need to get water should be, you go claim them and guard them. Don't let them get water as they come out of this territory. Don't let the camels get a drink because they're helping us, right? I think the camels were now on the team of Israel, team Israel, and they're moving forward. So go claim your land, get some water. Uh, you're going to like this, Grant. Beth Barah means house of the ford. So just if you want to mark that, uh, we get a first mention of fords in there. Uh, it's a Hebrew name. Likely they were the ones that inspired the name of this well. A Jordan we know is the Jordan River. It basically means reclaim everything between here and the Jordan that Joshua claimed for you before and that other tribes fought for you to get. Just take your land. Take that inheritance you've been given in the Lord and own it. And don't you feel that way sometimes when you're talking to other believers, other Christians? Just embrace what God's given you. He hasn't given you a spirit of fear. That's not from God. So take up what God's given you and march forward with it. Then the men of Ephraim gathered together and they seized the watering places as far as Beth Barah and the Jordan. They do it. Amen. They gathered together. There's a tension here that's going to build in the next few verses. It says the men of Ephraim gathered together. They didn't gather with Gideon. They gathered with themselves. So it's a faction. Got a group of believers doing what they're supposed to do, but it's a faction of believers, and they're divided off. So they're not with Gideon, verse 23, they're with themselves. They do rise up and answer his call, that's good, and they find courage in Gideon's stand that he's already taken, so they're stepping forward in a way they didn't step forward before, that's good. And Ephraim then, in chapter 8, when we get to chapter 8 next week, they're going to just start whining and complaining against Gideon. So that faction's going to grow, even though they're kind of doing some things with the kingdom, they're not with the team. And they're not moving forward with God's people, and in that sense, very soon they become complainers and gripers. Please, brothers and sisters, let's not be complainers and gripers. If you want to complain, give all your complaints to Steph. <laughs> when a work of God is going well, 
just wait for that second wave of believers to show up and start complaining and griping about what's going well, right? Like, who's Ephraim to tell Gideon what to do at this point? Gideon's followed the Lord. He's heard from God. He's doing what he's told. And 300 men just routed 135,000 men. And Ephraim's going to gripe against Gideon? Really? And you would think Gideon would be a little ungraceful with that. Like, he'd just be, you guys are just idiots. And he'd walk away. But he doesn't do the idiot parts. He does walk away. We'll get to that next week. And they, Ephraim, captured two princes of the Midianites, Oreb and Zeb. They killed Oreb at the Rock of Oreb. Obviously, they're named after the event. And, they, and Zeb they killed at the winepress of Zeb. And they both good names for a dog, by the way. I, just, I don't know if that means anything, but Zeb and Oreb, aren't those good names? They pursued Midian and they brought the heads of Oreb and Zeb to Gideon on the other side of the Jordan. Okay, now they're chopping off heads. Is there anywhere in God's... We've been reading through the whole Bible together, every single word. Is there anywhere in God's word where it says chop off people's heads? So where did Ephraim get this from? They learned it from their Canaanite friends. This is a barbaric practice. It's common in the ancient world. It's how they did things back then. You beat a kingdom, you take their king, they chop off their head, and you parade it around and show how, what a big person you are. They, if they're chopping off heads, they must have swords in their hands, which, again, they're on a different team. They're not doing it what God had told them to do. And Gideon told them, just take the water places. Make sure you guard those wells. Protect the living water. Get the imagery? So instead of just standing their ground, they're out chopping off heads. And it's not what Gideon asked for. God never asked for this. Israel isn't a repentant nation right now. We have to understand that about the judges. They're acting in ways that are not according to God's law. They're not revived. Ephraim has not repented. They've not gone through the sacrifice that Gideon gave to the Lord in the last chapter. Ephraim's doing stuff that's on their own channel, their own track, they're on their own program, and they're off the rails. So Gideon's now got to deal with these people. But how do you deal with these people when the real enemy is Midian and the Amicalites? Right? That's the enemy God's told him to fight, but now he's got his own countrymen that he's got to deal with. And, the, and they're coming, walking up to him with this head in their hands, and then when we pick up next week, they're going to pro proceed to complain to Gideon about what he did wrong. And you're just going, come on, Ephraim. And Ephraim's going to be a pain in Israel's butt here for the next few books of the Bible. So we're going to see Ephraim goes off the rails. All, this is part of their personality. It's part of who they are in the kingdom. Um, and it, they're going to show us that, again, we're not exactly dealing with people that are acting according to God's law. Here's what critics of the Bible will do. They'll look at the chopping off of heads, and they'll hold that up and say, look at how horrendous Israel was to people but they're not seeing the narrative of judges there. It, Israel was not chopping off heads in the name of God. Ephraim was chopping off heads to show Gideon that they should have been asked to come in in the first place. Why didn't you invite us into leadership? And they're showing how awesome they are doing this work that they think is what God's asked for. But it's not what God's asked for. So when you're dealing with those critics of the Bible, the answer on this one is just read the whole book. Like, don't just read a sentence. Like, understand that this is in the middle of a conflict situation with the very people that went chopping heads off. And they do this kind of thing, and it's not exactly holy. And when Israel does these things in the book of Judges, this is not what God commanded them to do in Exodus, Deuteronomy, Leviticus, Numbers, even Joshua as a practical model of what it should look like. They're not doing anything right in the book of Judges. 
They're not following the law. That's the whole point of the book of Judges is that Samuel's trying to coordinate these narratives and say, this is why we got sent to Babylon. This is why we lost our nation. And it started all the way back with Othniel. And all the way through, we got worse and worse and worse. And then God finally said, enough, you don't get your land anymore. So you have to understand that about Judges in order to take this in, which is why God gives us Judges as the, you know, we're six books into the Bible. We're supposed to know what God's commanded before we see what God's people did. And so this is a, a, a tough passage. Um, it is an example of other believers being a distraction to people that are following God's word. And this can happen. And it, it's sad when it does. And you may have experienced something like that where you're trying to move forward in what the Lord's told you to do and you've got discouragers that come in and tell you you're doing it the wrong way. And it's a very difficult thing to take discouraging people and just not worry about them and move forward anyways in the joy of the Lord. Um, but this is, that's where we're going to pick up with next week. I was going to try to do chapter 8 this week, Paul, but I got another 8 pages. It's a really cool chapter. Um, so we are, it's like part 1 this week, and we'll do part 2 next week. Um, and there's going to be another two groups of people that Gideon deals with on the other side of the Jordan. Remember the two and a half tribes? He's going to deal with them too. And they're slightly different situations, but in all of these situations, all five of them, He's dealing with other Israelites. He's not dealing with Midian and Canaan. We only had one sentence. They ran. That's all we get on that. But when it comes to how what happened amongst the Israelites and how they're not moving in unity with each other, that's kind of, I think, what Gideon can be about too. And we can learn a lot from that. So that's what's going to happen next week. But before we're done, we have a friend that's in another part of the world that I can't say because of audio tracking software out there. But we have a very good friend, and her name starts with B and it ends with R-I-T-T-A. Um, and it's her, it's her birthday, and we just wanted to uh, say hello to our friend by that name that's out there. And if you could join me in a happy birthday, we still got the recorder on, and she'll be able to hear this. If you're on the podcast right now, you can just hit stop because you're at the end. Um, we're just going to say hi to one of our friends. So you ready? Happy birthday to you, happy birthday to you, happy birthday dear birthday, birthday to you, awesome, let's say a word of prayer, dear Lord we thank you for your word and the instruction it can give. Lord, I don't know where everybody's heart's at in this room and where their souls are at. Lord, but when we see God's people struggle in your word, and this is the week we're here, there's no coincidences. There might be somebody in this room that's struggling right now with other believers. Uh, and Lord, I just pray that they can learn and take what they can from this chapter. Lord, I pray as we pray together and as we discuss this chapter together afterwards, Lord, that we can get encouragement and hope to know that you are God, you are in charge, and you are loving and merciful. Lord, bless our hearts and bless our souls. Lord, teach us to not only be about the business of fighting in your army and blowing the trumpets and marching uh, as we are and standing our ground where you tell us to stand, Lord, but help us to also just be aware of uh, our brothers and sisters in the faith that are struggling with fear, uh, brothers and sisters in the faith that struggle with them putting themselves over the ministry, uh, and brothers and sisters in the faith that are going to come in and chop off heads and think that's good. Um, Lord, help us to just be loving and merciful, that we can continue to coach and guide and lead like Gideon leads and says, come follow me and do as I'm doing. Uh, Lord, that we can 
raise up leaders around this country, Lord, that can do that, that can be men of honor and women of honor that are fighting for what they see you say in your word, and they're doing it boldly and joyfully. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. Amen. If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.